Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. Today is April 19th, 2018. I am broadcasting live from Southern California. As a reminder, the West Coast Foreclosure Show is brought to you live every other Thursday. And then Neil is on with his own show every other Thursday. Uh, This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated. And you can donate directly to the blog by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www. Dot livinglies.wordpress.com. Now today we're going to be discussing unlawful detainer unlawful detainers and evictions in foreclosures, with a particular emphasis on what happens and what the procedures are in non-judicial foreclosure states. Now the first thing that happens with an unlawful detainer when there's a foreclosure context is that there always has to be a three-day notice in California. Other states hypothetically might have different notice standards. However, the unlawful detainer status is a legal status that's going to be the same in virtually all states. And I believe it is the same in all states. What I mean by that is when your property goes to sale in a non-judicial auction, time of that sale, you, you, the former owner, are considered what's called a holdover tenant. And this is absolutely the law in California. And as I say, there's some legal procedure to give holdover tenants rights in all 50 states. What that procedure will look like will vary from state to state, but a lot of what we're discussing today, listeners will be able to to kind of use it as a guide. You'll have to look into matters in your own state. And as, as I always recommend, I think you should consult an attorney in your jurisdiction 
particularly one who specializes with unlawful detainers, if you yourself or you know someone is dealing with the situation. And I also need to emphasize that everything I say today, don't take it as legal advice. It is not legal advice. Simply presenting some information, you'll, you will need as the listener to do a lot of follow-up and due diligence and check out the actual state of the law in your area. Uh, the information I provide is meant to be by way of guideline only. When the three-day notice is, is, is given, and again, that's how it would work in California after a non-judicial foreclosure sale. When the three-day notice is given, naturally, since you're considered a legal tenant, it doesn't make any sense to vacate the property right then uh, unless you want to be overly accommodating to the, uh, to the institution that just bought your house or to the third party that ended up buying a house as a third party at a non-judicial foreclosure sale. Now, if you defend against your unlawful detainer, many times you're able to get months or more additional time to potentially negotiate a settlement of your matter. And one of the things that happens after the three-day notice is unless you agree to vacate, typically, typically unless you agree to vacate, there will be an unlawful detainer lawsuit sometimes. Now, what I, what I, what I would, will say to you as listeners and what I, what I tell people sometimes otherwise is that there are going to be cases where, particularly if it's the institution that takes it back, let's say it's a, a nominal Deutsche Bank Trust or New York Bank Mellon Trust that's taking your property to sale through a servicer. That servicer could be any of the major servicers. Um, in any case, the servicer is who directs the sale through a sales trustee. And then the nominal trust holder, if they're a so-called legal owner, sensible legal owner of the, of the property after the sale, then they would be the one to bring the unlawful detainer action. And that's who you need to defend against. Now, when you are served with a summons and complaint, you must be, and here I'm talking about the unlawful detainer summons and complaint, you must be personally served. That's an essential feature of the whole process. And it's not illegal to try to limit getting served. It, it can be illegal in some context, uh, depending on how you're served and what you say and what the other party says. If the serving person, though, can't be in, in, in close proximity to you, meaning they can bang on your door, they can see you in the driveway, if they're not able to talk to you and you have no legal obligation to talk to them, then it can be difficult for them to serve you. They have to be at least within earshot, preferably where they can hand you the lawsuit document. This is 
where the server would need to be. And again, if you don't engage that person, there's nothing illegal about that. If you make misrepresentations about your identity and other matters, when you are cornered, let's say, and there is a service taking place, that's another matter. You'd need to seek further legal advice about that. That's a, a nuanced situation that I won't get into further now. However, it can be days and weeks before you're served the lawsuit document, even when there are efforts to serve you. That, that's the way it can happen sometimes. Once you are served, in California, you only have five calendar days to respond. Now, what that means is you need to respond within those five calendar days. Now, the fifth day can't fall on a non-court day. However, once you peel around to the next one, even if it's six or seven calendar days, you do need to put in a legal response. Now, one of the first legal things you can do in California is ask to recuse the judge. There can be situations where that doesn't make any sense, uh, but it, it, it does make sense in some, some cases. And it's a peremptory challenge when it's right out of the gate and it's the first time that you're making an appearance in your case. What I mean by that is you have a challenge as of right to whoever the judge is. You don't have to have an elaborate legal reason. You don't have to have a specific reason. You can simply challenge the judge at that early stage when you're making an appearance. Now, when you do that, your case will be reassigned and it will often take some period of time for uh, the case to get reset on calendar with another judge, sometimes with another department. And the other thing you can do as the still fighting homeowner, technically former homeowner at that time, the other thing you can do is file a motion to quash with your challenge of who the judge is. And a motion to quash service is often warranted. You don't have to have a compelling motion to quash. There simply has to be some irregularity. And because it relates to service, and service is supposed to be compliant with a lot of particulars, there's usually some basis, there's usually some legal basis for challenging the service. So when you challenge service, that can also buy you several weeks' time, sometimes even more than that. And then once the service is essentially heard in court, in other words, your motion to quash, now typically I will say in a great number of these cases, the, the motion to quash that, that is filed from your side by your attorney, by yourself in some cases if you don't have an attorney, what's going to happen then is that highly likely the judge will rule against you. Sometimes you really have good merit in your motion to quash. And it's the kind of pleading with the kind of facts situation that should be upheld, meaning you should win the motion to quash. Now, if you do win the motion, it doesn't mean your case is over. 
the other side, typically the plaintiff, the unlawful detainer plaintiff, they will still try to serve you again. But one of the critical things in unlawful detainer proceedings is time. The more time you can buy, the better. Time is absolutely your friend. And a lack of time is very much your enemy when you're facing an unlawful detainer. Uh, if you do nothing and you don't oppose the lawsuit at all and you don't file anything with the court, again, either on your own or through an attorney, well, once you get past that five-calendar day window or seven or eight, if it rolls around a weekend or a holiday weekend, then what happens is the other side, the, the plaintiff can default you. And then if that happens, things can move pretty quickly, unfortunately. Um, that's not to say that a default can't be taken at other times in, in, in the unlawful detainer lawsuit, but it's very irregular and it's essentially a violation, almost always a violation of procedure or any default judgment to happen in an unlawful detainer case where you have legally answered. And I've seen situations where courts have illegitimately tried to ignore an unlawful detainer answer. And it's absolutely infuriating when it happens because then the other side is allowed to get a judgment. And that's a, that's a situation that simply should not obtain. And sometimes it does. And it has to be reversed. However, typically when you file a legal answer, then the only two ways, it's actually technically three ways that the UD plaintiff could prevail. They could set a trial date, which unfortunately under the rules of unlawful detainers, that trial date can be set pretty quickly. It may only be three weeks, four weeks down the road. In fact, under California law, theoretically, it's supposed to be no more than 25 days from the time it's set, when it is set. Now, the other issue you have is you have a situation where the UD plaintiff can go for a motion for summary judgment. Sometimes they might even go for a motion for judgment on the pleadings. Now, one of the, I could call this an anomaly. It's, it's, it's actually just a kind of, well, unfortunately, it's an example of the institutional bias uh, I so, talk, so often talk about, and I will mention here. One of the ways the institutional bias consistently benefiting the institutional players on the other side, in this case, unlawful detainer plaintiffs, like New York Bank Mellon, like Deutsch, uh, a certain trust in both cases, or, you know, even one of the servicers who purports to, quote, unquote, own your note, such as Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. Now, what happens is the motion for summary judgment, the, the UD plaintiff will simply say, oh, well, this case is only about possession, which is absurd. 
because you've been possessing your property as a legal lawful owner for years. Whether you were paying your mortgage and for how long, doesn't matter until that non-judicial foreclosure sale happened, you were the legal owner of the property. And yet the unlawful detainer court system is set up principally to litigate matters between regular paying tenants and landlords they rent from. In other words, this odd legal procedure called unlawful detainer, which literally is set up in every state to both provide protections and rights, not just to tenants, but also landlords. This, this whole system, it's, it's become the legal system through which an eviction happens after a foreclosure sale. And even in judicial foreclosure states where there is an eviction and unlawful detainer after judgment is, is garnered, then again, your legal status is gonna be as a holdover tenant. And those are gonna be the rules, the unlawful detainer rules that'll determine when and how you're evicted. If you're evicted, there's always the possibility of settling And that does happen. It doesn't happen. I would say it happens enough that it's not rare, but it does not happen so often that I would say settlements often happen in an unlawful detainer context. What is unusual, extremely unusual, is to beat the unlawful detainer completely, and then the UD plaintiff just goes away and doesn't go for a second round. Now, it, it is possible for attorneys to even win several unlawful detainers, sometimes even with the same case, over a period of months or even years, and yet at the end of the day, the UD plaintiff will still be allowed to come back into court. Sometimes there'll be a dismissal with prejudice, but that's very unusual in unlawful detainer, in, in unlawful detainer cases. So now you're in your unlawful detainer case, hypothetically, and you have filed your motion to quash. That was denied. You've done a motion to recuse your judge right off the bat, and you have your regular judge now who's going to be hearing the case. Now, one of the things you can do is file a demur. Now, in California, you have that as a right. Now, again, uh, institutional people on the other side, some people possibly, um, even with government oversight of these issues, may claim that, oh, if you file a demur in a UD, that's fraud. No, it's not fraud at all. If after a non-judicial foreclosure sale, you already have a colorable claim. Maybe you've been litigating that claim um, through a plaintiff's lawsuit, even while you were a defendant in the UD matter. You can readily have a colorable claim in many foreclosure contexts where you challenge standing of the nominal trust 
to proceed against you in foreclosure. <clears throat> and with that claim, whether you filed it or not, whether it's an active lawsuit or not, it's still quite legitimate for you to challenge the institutional player who's trying to take take your, your home through eviction after having already <clears throat> gotten the legal right to do so ostensibly. The whole point of the unlawful detainer procedure, of course, is it's a court lawsuit with a series of hearings to give you some rights to vindicate your claim when you have such a claim that the the nominal trust holder, the UD plaintiff, has no standing and no right to foreclose, and therefore the foreclosure should be void, the documents associated with it, such as the trustee's deed upon sale, they should be void as well. And you should also keep in mind when you're in this type of litigation, the courts typically allow the UD plaintiffs to cut a lot of corners. What I mean by that is you would think that a trustee's deed upon sale would need to be recorded to essentially provide some minimal ratification of the supposed status where you no longer own the property. And yet I've seen unlawful detainer judges, I've seen judges handling unlawful detainer matters who will allow a judgment to go forward and find against a UD defendant when that defendant is a former homeowner uh, having gone through foreclosure. I've seen judges, and I've heard of them also beyond that, find even without a trustee deed upon sale being reported with some evidentiary presentation, then the presumptive non-judicial foreclosing party, the institutional player, again, often a trust, will be considered to have successfully foreclosed. Therefore, you get kicked out. Unlawful detainer judgment. I think it's outrageous, but it does happen. However, the trustee's deed upon sale, it's an easy document to record, and most of the time that happens anyway. In reality, you as the unlawful detainer defendant, you should be given full, full latitude to litigate within an unlawful detainer, but it's very rare for that to happen. Uh, you can sometimes consolidate your case with plaintiff's um, lawsuits where you have a plaintiff's lawsuit either before, during, or after the unlawful detainer matter. Um, it is typically difficult to do that. It does happen sometimes. A lot of it depends on the specific judges you're in front of. It's often worth a shot. However, you certainly can't count on it, and I would say more times than not, such consolidation efforts will be rejected. They're still worth trying, though, in some cases, because if you're successful in consolidating your case, and what I mean by that, because I realize I haven't told you exactly what case consolidation is, case consolidation is you have a plaintiff's lawsuit going concerning the title issues of nominal trust defendant, and then that nominal trust defendant has sued you in unlawful detainer, 
after foreclosing on your property. Now, what that means in the real world is since the situations are similar, then hypothetically you can get a judge to sign off and say, look, these cases are both about ultimate title. We should hear the entire title challenge in my plaintiff's lawsuit so that I don't get kicked out on this summary basis in these unlawful detainer proceedings. You would think judges would sign off on that. You would think they would sign off it in the vast majority of cases. However, again, I'm not saying they rarely sign off on that. I'm saying they do not often sign off on that. They will sign off on it sometimes. It's dependent on a lot of different variables. And again, because there are so many variables with that, you'd need to consult an attorney in your jurisdiction about the prospect of case consolidation. Uh, the, there are other types of things you can do as well to slow down the way uh, procedure happens and works. And two of these matters are federal removal and bankruptcy. And we have limited time uh, in this show to discuss those in detail. So I won't be discussing them in detail. They are legal options, bankruptcy and federal removal within an unlawful detainer context. Uh, again, sometimes you'll have the, the institutional players on the other side and you'll have other people claim that these are not legitimate options. Don't believe that. These can be legitimate options. It's possible for the legal procedure around a federal removal or around a bankruptcy. It's possible legally, hypothetically. If done a certain way, it might be potentially fraudulent. On the other hand, if done another way, it may be perfectly legitimate and it may be something that is at least possible, colorable legal action to take under the circumstances. Uh, those are things that you'll want to consider on the defense side if you are a defendant or if you know someone in that situation. But again, they'd need to consult with an attorney who specializes in the area. A lot of attorneys will not get involved in those types of matters, talking about federal removals and bankruptcies within unlawful detainer procedure. Some attorneys will get involved, and I think there's a legitimate place for them. Now, the other thing that happens is even if you get a judgment, that's not the end of the story. You can still appeal the judgment. Sometimes you can get the judgment reversed. Sometimes a judgment's brought when you brought a legal answer. I was mentioning that earlier. That does not happen often, but I have seen it happen. And oftentimes those can be reversed. A lot depends on the court. A lot depends on the judge. And unfortunately, a lot of judges hate these cases. They may be somewhat patient with a renter unlawful detainer case where there's a rent dispute, and they might even have sympathy for tenants in that situation. Those same judges, though, I've seen them become very impatient when they're dealing with 
our situation, meaning they can become very impatient when they're handling an unlawful detainer after a foreclosure. So everything that happens in these cases is you will need time to move somewhere else. And if you have the additional time, that is often a very positive thing. So we are coming up to the end of our program time. Neil will be back on next week. And regards to everyone in the meantime. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.